0: Stories UK, Episode 27, The Alan Chapelo Murder. Hampstead, London. It was the 12th of June 2006. There was a phone call from HSBC Banks Fraud Department to the police to check on a customer, as someone had been appearing to pretend to be their customer and Mr Chapelo They phoned the police as the customer did not have a landline phone and apart from the post there was no other way to contact him. The police officers Mike Cole in Samazulis arrived at the address at 9 Downshire Hill Hampstead. Two other police officers were at the house when they arrived Chantelle Thomas and Ben Roberts. The house could not be seen from the road It was much neglected and the garden overgrown. Rhododendron bushes and ivy dominated the garden. At one time the house would have been an elegant three-storey cream-coloured house with two and eight balconies with large arched windows. There was no answer from the house when the door was knocked and there was no sign of a forced entry. The house was all locked up and the windows on the lower floor had steel bars. The police attended, attending decided to force the front door. Once inside the house, the hallway was seen to be filled with hoarded rubbish. At the end of the hallway was a white door, which was also locked, and the officers could not open. Worried that somebody may be trapped inside, the police requested a battering ram, an enforcer, to batter the white door open. The interior of the house was filthy and full of rubbish and junk, which had clearly been hoarded. Because the house was not easy to enter, because of all the rubbish piled everywhere, a third police unit was called to assist. None of the lamps worked, and the house was damp and dusty, with strange smells and lots of bluebottle flies. Floorboards had rotted away, and the house was considered dangerous. More officers arrived with torches to help in the search which also seemed a health hazard with so many buckets and bottles of a liquid which appeared to be urine. There were also concerns over the state of the stairs that seemed as if they may give way. A current passport, a UK passport and details of a recent trip to the USA were found on a table which indicated the house was inhabited. The search was abandoned at about 5pm that afternoon, and the doors were boarded up. The police questioned a neighbour who said that she had seen the owner of the house, who also lived there, an 86-year-old called Alan Chapelot, after he returned recently from the USA, but she did not know where he was now. The police recorded him as a low-risk missing person. The next day, the police resumed their search, it had also been reported that there had been an attempted use of Chapalo's credit card and there were suspicions that harm had come to Chapelo. His neighbours seemed to view him as a recluse and a, as a, an eccentric. Chapalo's relatives had been contacted and said it would be unlikely he would be away from the house. Because of the amount of rubbish stored up at the house, the police dog team was called in to help. It was mid-afternoon on the 14th of June, 2006 that a body was found buried or hidden, under a mass of printed paper, estimated to weigh 560 kilograms. It was also assumed that the body was that of the house owner, Alan Chapeleau. Who was Alan Chapello? Alan Czapelow was born on the 20th of August 1919 in Denmark. His father, Archibald, wanted to avoid military service during World War I and fled to neutral Denmark at the start of the war. His mother was Danish. After World War I, Alan's family moved back to London and his father began work in the family building business. Archibald was described as an artist-architect. In 1925, Allen's family moved to a house in Downshire Hill, Hampstead. Later, in 1935, they moved to Nine Downshire Hill, a Grade II listed house which had been built in the early 19th century. The house had been home to the Lord of the Manor of Belsize, it was an outstanding piece of late regency architecture. Alan's family were members of the Fabian Society, a proto-Labour party believing in a slow transition to a socialist society. Allen's uncle had also been a conscientious objector during World War 1. Alan's family were atheists. He enjoyed a middle-class upbringing. He was sporty, he liked stamp collecting, and was sent away to boarding school. On leaving school he started in the banking business, and his latest hobby was photography. At the outbreak of World War II, Alan was 20 years of age, and he registered as a conscientious objector. He was sent to work in farms as a civilian worker. At weekends, he travelled from his farm he was working at, in Hampshire, to London. And during the summer holiday break, in 1942, he met Sidney and Beatrice Webb at a Fabian Society summer school. He took their photographs and became interested in taking portrait photographs of people he admired and met through family connections. During 1943, Alan returned to London and worked at night as an RAP warden. He enrolled at a college during the day to study philosophy and ethics. At the end of World War II Allen decided that he wanted to be a photojournalist. He applied to Cambridge University to study moral sciences on a two-year degree programme. He later studied 19th century social history at the London School of Economics. He took photographs of people such as H.G. Wells and Bernard Shaw. He sold photographs to newspapers and started writing newspaper articles. Allen seemed to specialise in interviewing elderly men and writing articles about them. He interviewed Somerset Maughan, Augustus John and Bertrand Russell, among others. He found some fleeting fame by taking the last photographs of George Bernard Shaw, who was very famous at the time, and this photograph was widely shown in newspapers after his death. In the summer of 1954, Annan went on a tour of Russia with a group of students sympathetic to Soviet Russia. Stalin had died, and their attempts to build friendlier links between Russia and the West Alan wrote a book entitled, Russian Holiday. It was released in 1955 and did quite well, although it was blatant socialist propaganda. Alan then went on a trip to Albania in order to write about his adventures. In 1958, Alan decided that he wanted to write a book about his hero, George Bernard Shaw. He was completing final drafts on the book in 1961 when his mother died. The book was released dedicated to his beloved mother. The book was not received well. One review described it as a a jungle of trivia. After this, in some other setbacks, Alan suffered from depression and seemed to slowly withdraw from society although he worked on another book about George Bernard Shaw. September 1976. Alan's father had died, and he lived alone at Nine Downshire Hill. The house had fallen into disrepair. Alan was a confirmed bachelor, and seemed to show no interest in the opposite sex. By the late 20th century, Hampstead had changed since the time of Alan's youth. It was a much more desirable place to live, and house prices had rocketed. Nine Downshire Hill became neglected, the garden overgrown, the plumbing stopped working, the cold water tank had fallen through the attic floor and was not repaired. All sorts of rubbish piled up in the house as Alan began to hoard. Although not many people could put up with squalid conditions, it was home for Alan, a house full of memories. Alan had been seen making temporary repairs to the roof with plastic sheeting to stop rainwater flooding in and causing even more damage. At times, Alan still went on adventures. He was said to take package holidays by himself. In 1993, he went on a trip to Albania, organised by the UK-based Albanian Society. The leader of the trip said he was ill-prepared. Alan was ill-prepared. Alan seemed to be in a fog the ten days of the trip, and was one of the oddest people that he'd ever met. Just before he was murdered, and at the age of 86, he took a trip to the USA to meet family members and do some more research on George Bernard Shaw. Alan Chappellow was an eccentric character who seemed out of step with the world. He didn't have any close friends or family and was a very private person. Little is known about his lifestyle from the 1960s. His neighbours at Downshire Hill who knew him better than most said he would have been unhappy at the exposure of his life after his death, and presumably he'd be unhappy about this podcast. His neighbours described him as a friendly eccentric, who would make rare trips to the library or shops on his 1940s motorbike, wearing a leather helmet and an old Mac with a string belt. There was talk of a court action being taken against him for letting a house with a preservation order falling in such poor repair. A police homicide unit assessment team was sent to assess the situation and a crime team to preserve the scene and to take photographs after the discovery of the body. The investigation would be known as Operation Barnsdale. It soon became clear to the police that the body was at Alan Chapelo and that he had had no landline or internet, and no social media presence. He had no immediate family, and only distant relatives, who didn't really know anything about him, and he didn't seem to have any friends. This, of course, made it very difficult for the police to understand Ciappolo, or give any hint why he may have died, and if anybody would want him dead. The forensic examination was difficult. The body was decomposed and the house would be very difficult to investigate given that it was like a derelict junk store. Chapelo had been in contact with the local police during the first week of May 2006 to complain that his post had been stolen after his front door had been forced open. This may have been in conjunction with the concerns from HSBC Bank that someone had tried to deposit cheques made out to Chapelo into a different account. It also transpired that Chapelo had a mobile phone, which could not be found. The police found the mobile number in Chapelo's papers, and contacted the provider, Orange, who said that the SIM card had been used in recent weeks. The lead detective was D.I. Lansdowne, who came up with two theories as to why Chapelo was murdered. One, he had befriended someone who had been allowed to enter the house and killed him. Two, a burglary had gone wrong. While he was away in the USA, the burglar had been coming into the house to steal checks. Then he had been surprised by Chapelo returning home. The struggle had resulted in the death of the man who was aged 86. However, the murder had been carried out with so much violence, it was as if the murder had been personal and not just a random burglary. Or again, perhaps, it was just a violent drug addict. It later proved that Chapelo had been a probable victim of identity fraud. His mail had been stolen, and he had asked the Inland Revenue to cancel a cheque that had been sent to him, as he suspected it had been stolen for fraudulent purposes. Lansdowne's team of detectives included Bill Jeffson and Peter Devlin. They were both experienced and Scottish detectives. The first jobs were to complete a forensic examination of the house, and to conduct a door-to-door investigation into Chapelow in the neighborhood. They also had to make further inquiries into the banking and telephone records which could potentially offer instant results into revealing the identity of the murderer. The pathologist Robert Chapman was very experienced. He attended the house on the 16th of June 2006. The debris covering the body of Alan Chapelo had been carefully removed and the body was dressed in a blue sweater, blue trousers held up with braces, and brown leather shoes. Chapman was wearing a white protective jumpsuit and a face mask. There there was dried blood around the head and body of Chapolo, whose skull had been crushed and many of his ribs broken. There were extensive fractures to his neck which suggested that he had been strangled and the top half of his body was covered in congealed wax and burn marks. The entomologist, Samantha Pickles, collected samples from the body in order to ascertain a time of death which he later suggested was most likely between May the 9th and May the 16th. As the police found his body on the 14th of June he had been there undiscovered for the best part of a month. However, another neighbour claimed to have seen him in early June. The weather during May and June had been unseasonably hot that year. Later estimates of the time of death was put down about May the 10th. Nine days after the body was discovered, a fire broke out at the property, causing severe damage. D.S. Devlin had been investigating Chapelo's bank accounts during the 16th of June and it seemed that money had been taken from the accounts. Without going into too much detail, money had been switched between accounts. Activation codes that had been sent to Chapelo's house home address had been used to effect this. These transactions were deemed suspicious by HSBC Bank as the internet had not been used in the past, and the actions were thought suspicious. £20,000 was transferred to an unknown account. Chapalo also had a Sainsbury's credit card, which had been used. Small amounts were withdrawn. For example, the card was used at an Indian restaurant just 10 minutes' walk from Chapalo's house for a meal, as recently as the 13th of June. What extraordinary to think that somebody would use a stolen credit card so close to the scene of its theft and possible murder and for such a small sum of money £31.65. pence. The person that probably killed Chapelo and emptied his bank account would have gone to the house to collect the new PIN codes in the post. While the body was still undiscovered, under the mountain of paper, the police went to the restaurant, called the Curry Paradise, an marketed Indian restaurant in Hampstead. The manager, Alicia did, gave a description of the couple as a middle-aged Oriental-looking pair. The credit card had been rejected, and they had no cash with them. They had tried to phone the bank without any results, so they left a phone while they went to get cash to pay their bill. The phone that was left behind did not match the description of Chapalo's phone. Although the bank had been satisfied that they were speaking to him, indicated that Chapalo's SIM card had been used in the phone that had been left behind. The description of the man given by Mr Shadid matched an earlier report of Chapelot's postman who said that an oriental middle-aged man had questioned him about mail for Chapelot's house on the 9 Downshire hill. A woman later returned and paid the bill with a credit card. Later police inquiries discovered that the woman who had paid the credit card was Dong Hui and she had bought an EasyJet ticket soon after to Zurich, Switzerland. If this was the murderer, it made the job of the police very easy to solve the case. Saturday the 17th of June. Dr Chapman carried out the autopsy on Alan Chapelot at St Pancras Hospital, recording that the body was five foot six and a half inches slim build and despite his age, brown hair. The body was decomposed and maggot damage widespread. Extensive injuries had been given to the head and the neck. There were signs of strangulation and blunt force blows to the head, face and ribs. Death was caused by a head injury, possibly with a hammer. It was also noted there were burn marks in congealed wax on the clothing. ...TV of a flight from Luton to Zurich to see if they could capture Don Hui on camera. Meanwhile, other police investigations managed to trace the phone left at the restaurant to an address... 13C Denning Road, London, NW3, to a man called Wang Yam. The police got a warrant to search the property and went to the property which was less than five minutes' walk from Chapelot's house. It soon became apparent that Dong Hui and Wang Yam had just moved out of a rented two-bedroom apartment which had been cleared out. It was sealed as a crime scene with blue and white tape. The rest of the flat owners in the house were questioned and the police were told that a Chinese couple had moved in on the 22nd of June 2005 replying to an advertisement in the free newspaper *Loot*. It was advertised by the owner who needed to move back to Italy for a while. At least one other flat resident was worried about the couple being involved in identity theft. The couple were known as Dong Hui and Wang Yam. He claimed to be from a wealthy Hong Kong family. They proved to be very poor tenants who did not pay the rent. Police searched several rubbish bags left behind by the couple. They found a CV for Wang Yam. Later police found that he had fled the UK after the discovery of Chapello's body, booking a ticket for Eurostar for Brussels. Dong Hui was thought to have flown to Zurich. Who was Wang Yam? He would grown up and attended university in China, and had arrived in the UK in the early 1990s. And then it claimed that he attended university at Imperial College London before working for various defence contractors. Wang Yam claimed to have fled political victimisation in China. Later investigations showed that Wang Yam may have been psychologically affected by childhood events in China, where his grandfather was said to have been friends with Chairman Mao and an influential figure on the Long March. But later his family had been suspected of being class enemies and sent into the Chinese countryside for purification. This was during the Cultural Revolution when his mother, who was a doctor, was sent to a remote region to serve the peasants who worked the land. His father, who was an army officer, had disappeared from his life. As a teenager, Wang Yam had effectively become an orphan after his mother died. Many of Wang Yam's claims were later questioned and the police thought he was a pathological liar. However, it seems that he had worked in research and development for China's nuclear industry. He had married and his wife worked as a civil servant in the Ministry for Foreign Economic Relations. Specializing in the relationship between China and the EU. Wang Yang also claimed to have been closely connected to the protesters in Tiananmen Square. He claimed to be a vice president of the students' body in 1989. He became an organiser for the movement for democracy. After 2,000 students had been killed during demonstrations... Wang Yam claimed that there was a witch-hunt to find the organisers. He said that he had been told that he was going to be re-educated by working in a coal mine in a remote region of China. This was the reason he claimed that he decided to flee China. Wang Yam managed to bluff his way into Hong Kong and claimed political asylum during August 1992. He was allowed to travel to a refugee centre in London, UK, and apply for political asylum, claiming he was the grandson of Chairman Mao Zedong's third-in-command, and was a research assistant in the Chinese Nuclear Weapons Research Institute, working on a top-secret military project. It appears that Wang Yam claimed connections with powerful families in China, It was later suggested that he was recruited by MI6 as a result of his claimed connections, which may or may not have been true. Subsequent research into his past by researchers in China found few reliable facts about him, although this was hindered by the fact that written records of the 1960s and 70s in China are few and difficult to find. Also, Wang Yam may have been disowned by his family, as he was considered dishonourable. People that Wang Yam claimed his family said that he is not a member of their family, so it's difficult to confirm Wang Yam's backstory. Although a professor who knew him at university is said to have found his former student, Wang Yam, very strange, and when pushed for further details, All he would say was, truth and lies, truth and lies. What is known is that while in Britain, Wang Yam used many different names and was a dishonest and morally dubious person. Extraordinarily quickly, Wang Yam was granted asylum and given a job and later started a PhD in electronics at Imperial College. Yam then started to get involved with the Chinese pro-democracy politics in London. During September, Yam's wife, Lai Jia, arrived in London, who quickly got a job at the Bank of China in London. By the mid-1990s, Wang Yam and his wife had bought a house at 18 Melrose Avenue, Wimbledon borrowing money for the deposit from contacts in the Chinese community. Wang Yan then left his studies to concentrate on business ventures, mainly involving IT. All of these ventures had failed by 2000. Computer companies, and mortgage companies, set up by Wang Yan, were all chaotically run. Creditors were pressing him to pay debts, The house was at risk of being sold to pay debts and the marriage was in difficulties and there was a divorce. In 2002, bailiffs arrived at the house to seize the property to pay debts. Wang Yang started schemes to try to make money one of which was to register domain names on the internet hoping to sell them for a large profit. Names like carinsurance.com could be worth millions, but the few domain names that he sold went for hundreds. The ventures that Wang Yam was involved in were often questionable to illegal. During the summer of 2004, Wang met Dong Hui, who was a student studying marketing at Middlesex University. She seems to have fallen hopelessly in love with Wang, and they moved into a one bedroom flat together at Hampstead. Wang was 43, Dong Hui was 26. A year later, in September 2005, Wang Yam apar- applied for personal bankruptcy. He was said to be unemployed and owing a million pounds. The detectives on the case realised their main uh, suspects had fled, probably to Switzerland. They put their names on the Interpol list and requested information from the Chinese authorities through the Foreign Office, trying to find out what they could about Wang Yan and Dong Hui. Meanwhile, they continued to build a case against Wang Yan. They studied CCTV footage at the HSBC bank of the person who tried to pay in cheques made out to Chapelo into the account of a Jenny Zhu, a woman that Wang Yam had a sexual relationship with and remained friends with afterwards. The man looked similar to photographs that the police obtained of Wang Yam from rubbish bags at the flat that he had vacated. The same person was captured on CCTV at shops using Chapelo's credit card. The police also discovered that the account that the cheques were to be deposited were based at a bank owned by He Jaya Jin, also known as Anthony Ho, who had a criminal record and was eventually jailed in 2012 for a £350 million fraud. He was also linked with Chinese organised crime gangs, the Triads. The police also tracked down Jenny Zhou and arrested her but were satisfied with the story that she told that she had been tricked by Wang Yam into him using her bank account. She signed a witness statement and was told to contact them if Wang got back in touch. The London police continued their search for Wang Yam and managed to get an IP address belonging to a computer in Switzerland and a Swiss phone number. The police were also making inquiries into Dong Hui, and discovered that she was pregnant in January 2006. With Wang Yam having declared himself bankrupt just five months previous, they must have been in a desperate state financially during May 2006, when Mr Chapalo was murdered. It thus came as a surprise to the police to discover that Wang Yam had offered to buy a house in Hampstead village for £1.4 million at around this time, a property at Gayton Road. Wang Yam had left proof of funds with the estate agents, showing a credit statement from Credit Suisse that said that he had funds of £34 million. He also made offers on other houses, having been in contact with 10 other uh, estate agents in North London. He appeared to tell a number of stories and left different email accounts as a contact. He claimed to be a cash buyer and that he had a number of offshore accounts. One of the houses that Wang Yan was said to be interested in was in Downshire Road, a 100 metres from where Alan Chapalo's house was. Wang Yam said later he was viewing on behalf of people in China who wanted to invest in the UK. It was possible that he was being used as a front for money laundering by Chinese organised crime gangs. During early June 2006, Wang Yam had given a number of cheques that had bounced. He was in obvious money difficulties when the money disappeared from Alan Chapello's accounts. And after Chapello's body had been discovered... Wang Yam left quickly. The police were reasonably sure that Wang Yam had murdered Alan Chapelow. He had acute money troubles. He had lived around the corner from Chapelow and the postman had thought it was him that approached him asking about mail being delivered to the house. He had Chapelow's SIM card in his phone. There was also CCTV evidence of him depositing cheques. Into the bank account of Genizu, an account that he had control over. Wang Yam was thought to be in Switzerland, which, not being part of the EU, it was not possible to issue a European arrest warrant for him. The Swiss had to be approached with an international arrest warrant. Wang Yam was arrested on the day of Alan Chapelot's murder, a uh, funeral, on the 25th of September 2006. He was charged with fraud and murder. Wang Am said he would not fight any extradition, but he would return to the UK to clear his name. So there's some chicken interference outside. I'm going to secure the window. Sorry about that. Dong Hui returned to the UK on the 8th of October 2006. Her intention was to give birth in the UK so the baby could have EU citizenship. But she was arrested as soon as she entered the country at Heathrow Airport. The police did not get much sense out of her. She seemed confused and scared. The police interviewed her again that month, suspecting that she knew more than she was pretending to know but without any positive results. On the 11th of November, Wang Yang was returned to the UK. He was handed over to the UK police by an extradition escort, with a box of evidence taken from the apartment Wang Yang was staying. Wang Yang was given a solicitor and was allowed to speak to Dong Hui. Wang Yang told his solicitor, James Mullion, that although it was true he had tried to deposit Alan Chapello's checks into his bank account, he did not kill him or even visit the house. He was given the checks by Chinese gangsters that specialized in identity fraud and money laundering. Wang Yam claimed that the Chinese gangsters knew, known to him as Gaz, Zhou Dong, and A Ming were responsible for Chapello's death. They must have shadowed him committed the murder and framed him. Detectives never believed Wang Yam's story and were unable to track down his alleged associates, the Chinese gangsters. Mulyan advised his client to answer no comment to everything, to give them a chance to build a defence. Wang Yan was told that he would be held on remand, and he would be represented free thanks to legal aid, and he would have a Chinese interpreter. He was remanded at HMP Pentonville. 19th of February 2007 Wang Yam applies for a bail hearing, which was denied, and is transferred to Belmarsh Prison in Woolwich, South London, which is a tough prison. November 2007 A P-11 certificate was issued by the Home Secretary Jackie Smith a public interest immunity p11 certificate is issued by the government allowing a court to prevent evidence from being disclosed to the public only about 25 high level p11 certificates are issued each year to prevent damage to the uk's national security or economic interests any trial subject to a p11 certificate would have to be held in camera this means that any trial would be held in private without public or press being able to attend. On the 13th of December 2007 the Evening Standard newspaper published the story Home Office Wants Murder Trial Held In Secret describing the murder and ongoing case in detail. The following day the Daily Mail published the same story adding that the CPS refused to discuss the reasons behind the decision. They added that this was the first ever murder trial to be subject to a gagging order. Within a few days, the UK's leading newspapers along with the BBC challenged the action and hired a lawyer to fight the application. The pre-trial hearing was on the 15th of January 2008 at the Old Bailey and it was explained that if the application for a secret trial was successful, then the press and public would be excluded. The defence, Geoffrey Robertson, led by Geoffrey Robertson, incidentally the husband of the author Cathy Lett, expressed their concern that if the defence was held in secret, then the press would not be able to report on the trial, and any new witnesses would be less likely to come forward. The press complained that the CPS, Crime Prosecution Service, had refused to give their reasons for a closed trial. The prosecution barrister, Mark Ellison, explained that unless the trial was held in secret, he would drop all charges, thus allowing a potential murderer to roam the streets. The judge decided that the trial would be held in secret, and in a separate order, the media was forbidden to speculate while the trial was to be held in secret, punishable by contempt of court. So to be clear, it was an offence for anyone to publish what they thought the reason were for the secret trial being held. It was later suggested by the Evening Standard that Wang Yang was probably a low level informant for MI5 or MI6. Who risk revealing the methods and capabilities of security services. It is possible that he had risked making the security services look foolish for believing information that he had supplied them as Wang Yam had been considered a chancer and a fantasist by people that had dealt with him. The trial of Wang Yam started on the twenty eighth of january, two thousand and eight. The judge, Mr Justice Osley, sorry Justice Oosley explained to the jury how the case would proceed the defendant would be charged with count one murder two counts of burglary and three counts of handling stolen goods the prosecution laid out their case and the defendant was charged the defendant was financially desperate he stole the victim's mail and checks in order to defraud, and killed him when when discovered. Then they fled the country when the police investigated. <clears throat> then they went on with the evidence. They had the CCTV, the SIM card evidence, witnesses and so on. A number of witnesses were called. The pathologist and entomologist all gave evidence. One witness was Beverly Young, who worked for a charity de- dedicated to the prevention of financial crime amongst the high street banks and credit card companies. She argued that the mail thief, also known as a facility hijacker, in this case had shown some sophistication and confidence. The facility hijacker, in this case, was not put off when challenged by the bank, but returned to Nine Downshire Hill to collect new pin numbers. The prosecution argued that it was because they knew they would not be disturbed at the house because the house owner was dead, murdered by the facility hijacker, who they claim was Wang Yam. The prosecution also pointed out that the defendant was using the victim's SIM card, probably checking that no one was trying to contact the the victim. After the presentation of evidence by the prosecution, the outlook was not looking promising for Wang Yam. At the start of week three of the trial, the defense started most of which was conducted in open court. The defence said there was no forensic evidence linking Wang Yam to Alan Chapelo or his house. He had never shown any violent tendencies and there were other suspects that the police had not pursued. He said that there were Albanian and Chinese gangsters, or maybe it was a friend of Alan's that murdered him. No evidence was offered to back these claims. A number of forensic ev- experts gave ed- evidence that there was nothing to link Wang Yam to the killing. During his time in the witness box, Wang Yam seemed to ham up his performance by switching from speaking in English to Mandarin and then vice versa. It was suspected that he wanted to fudge important parts of his testimony by making it difficult to understand in order to muddy the water, cause doubts so he would be found not guilty. Wang Yam said he was working with gangsters who were involved in illegal immigration and other crimes. They had given him cheques to pay into bank accounts. Wang Yam claimed that he was playing these gangsters along as a means of getting evidence against them, so he could report them to the authorities at a later time. The testimony of the defendant is said to have become increasingly rambling, Unintelligible, contradictory, and unconvincing. Regarding the trial being held in secret, sometimes when Wang Yan was in mid sentence, the judge brought proceedings to an abrupt halt and warned the defendant not to talk about sensitive matters in open court. The clerk would then call for the court to be cleared. These breaks in procedure would sometimes last just a short period of time, a few minutes. In total nine days of the 34-day trial were held in closed court where the public were not permitted and the court doors were locked during such times. The defence called four witnesses who gave their evidence in closed court. No part of the prosecution case was held in closed court. After a 10-week trial the jury could not decide if he had committed murder. They could not reach a verdict although he was found guilty on lesser charges. The judge ordered that there should be a retrial later that year on the murder charge. Wang Yang was convicted of two counts of burglary and three counts of handling stolen goods. Geoffrey Robertson, the defence barrister, was unavailable for the murder retrial and Geoffrey Cox was to lead the defence for the trial that started on the 13th of October 2008. The, following, the trial followed pretty much the same path as the original, except the public were no longer so interested, and the public gallery was sometimes empty. The defence introduced a new element suggesting that Alan Chapelow was gay, and went looking for partners at well-known gay cruising sites on Hampstead Heath. He may have invited somebody back to the house, who turned out to be the murderer. Voice experts were called in as witnesses for the prosecution and defence to give their opinions on the phone calls made by Chapelo and those claiming to be Chapelo, but the evidence each gave cancelled each other out. When Yang Yam gave his evidence it was all held in secret. In January 2009, Wang Yam was found guilty of the murder charge, burglary, and sentenced to a minimum of 20 years. The Times newspaper ran a story on the case with a headline Wang Yam found guilty of killing millionaire author to steal his identity. The story said that there were many possible suspects for the murder, including Mossad agents, Chinese triads, and casual meetups on Hampstead Heath. When the judge read the story, he referred to the contempt to the uh, the Attorney General to prosecute the newspaper for breaching the court or the judge's order and the 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 press should not speculate about the case. But the newspaper was just given a warning as it was not considered to be in the public interest to prosecute. BBC's Newsnight was also thought to have been told off after broadcasting an article on the case. After the case, the original defence barrister at the first trial, Geoffrey Robertson, argued that if Wang Yam admitted to fraud during the trial, which he was clearly guilty of, then the jury might not have thought him a liar, and he may not have committed murder and found him not guilty, making the second trial unnecessary. Robertson also thought it likely that although in his 80s, Chappolo did go looking for sex with strangers on Hampstead Heath, and he also may have been into corporal punishment. It seems that Chappolo was physically active, and not the frail old recluse as re- portrayed in the media. He had, of course, only recently returned from an extended holiday in the United States. It was also thought that the wax stains found on Allen's clothing may have been the result of some sex play, This is a form of BDSM, called wax play, when hot wax is dripped upon the body. Wang Yan was taken to serve his sentence at HMP Whitemore, a maximum security prison in Cambridgeshire. 75% of the inmates here have committed murder. It was a tough place. 40% of the prison population was Muslim. They were trying to pressurise inmates to convert to Islam and it seems that Wang Yam was beaten up when he rebuffed their invitations. In early 2009, Wang Yam's defence team were putting together an appeal over his sentence. But the Court of Appeal dismissed it. Wang Yam's lawyers then applied to the European Court of Human Rights. This was expected to take some time. It was May 2011 before the case was presented and another year before it was reviewed. But complications on other security issues meant the evidence was withheld. It seemed that the appeal was going nowhere. By the end of 2012, Wang Yam, who had got married to Dong Hui some years previously, realised that his wife was drifting away from him. She stopped visiting him, and later stopped phoning him. She seemed to have given up hope of him ever being released and wanted to move on with her life meanwhile while in prison Wang Yam helped repair computers that were sent to Africa and played his favourite sport of table tennis there was some interest in the case being generated in the media and an investigative journalist Duncan Campbell incidentally the husband of the actress Julie Christie said although Wang Yam had a rackety past, his failed businesses and bankruptcy and dodgy dealings, he was still entitled to a fair trial. Campbell published stories about the case in The Guardian newspaper. What at Campbell in The Guardian was the trial being held in secret without any explanation. Campbell published an article in The Guardian on the 28th of February 2014 which included a story from a neighbour of Alan Chapelo called Jonathan Bean, who said that he had been threatened by a man with a knife that he had caught in his porch going through his mail. The man knew about the family that lived there, he knew about Bean, his wife, his child, and said they would be murdered if Bean phoned the police. Bean, who was in the process of moving out, ignored the threats, it was reported to the police who created a crime reference number for the incident, but then did nothing about it. Campbell suggesting in his article that he thought the gangsters were involved with mail fraud at the time of the Chapelo murder. Nigel Stewart was chair of Hampstead Safe Neighbourhood Scheme and lived 100 metres from Nime Downshire Hill, where Chapelo was murdered. He said at the time of Alan's murder, He had been aware of numerous incidents of mail theft and stealing from rubbish bins. Stewart claimed that criminals came round in lorries. They picked up people's bins before the rubbish collection. The rubbish was taken to a warehouse where it was sorted. Back in 2006, estate agents and banks were much more relaxed about privacy and there was a lot of identity fraud. There was a fair amount of media coverage after the case, and claims the case had breached Article 6 of the European Court of Human Rights, as part of the case had not been heard in public. The case again reached the Court of Appeal, partly as the result of newspaper stories suggesting that identity gangs, prepared to use violence, had been operated in the area at the time of Chapelow's murder. Three Appeal Court judges met on the 18th of July, 2017. Wang Yam appeared on a screen monitors in court. He was speaking from HMP Loudon, Grange Prison, near Nottingham. Jonathan Bean appeared as a witness, telling of his confrontations with a knifeman going through his post during February 2007, eight months after the Chappelot had been murdered, threatening his family with death. If he informed the police, although it transpired that no money had ever been taken from Bean's bank accounts. Another witness called was Peter Hall, who was also known as Serpico. Hall was a tall, a tall, thin man, aged 69, who lived in Hornsey, North London. He'd been cruising for gay sex on Hampstead Heath three or four times a week for decades. Hall worked in advertising and local government until his retirement. Hall explained that there had been a strange shaped tree called the Spanking Bench, an area popular with gay men on Hampstead Heath. The Spanking Bench, he explained, had a worldwide reputation and attracted both those that liked to be spanked and those that liked to inflict punishment. A few years ago, a man Hall knew was beaten to death. The man was a civil servant who was into heavy BDSM bondage, domination, submission and masochism. He would ask men to beat him up. One night he met two men at the bench and was beaten so badly that he crawled into the undergrowth and died. Two men were subsequently convicted of his murder. Hall knew a man called Allen, and He had a homemade whip or a belt with him, which he used to slap on the bench in order to attract like-minded people. This man was Alan Chappelow, and he'd been known to invite people back to his house, which Hall thought was in the direction of Downshire Hill. Although Hall did not know the address, Hall reported that on two occasions he'd seen him leave with young men, Hall had also been asked by Chapalo to go back with him, but he had declined. It wasn't until some time after the murder that Peter Hall saw a photograph of Alan Chapalo in the newspaper and realised it was Alan who he had known at the spanking bench. And when asked why he did not contact the police, he replied he didn't see the point as the police had also already arrested somebody for the crime. Hall taking the view that most of the crimes that occur on the heath at night go unreported for a variety of reasons. Hall thought that the Chaplow murder was very unlikely to have been a burglary gone wrong. More likely to be somebody that he met on the heath. Very brave of Peter Hall to come forward. There was a similar murder to that of Chaplow six months previous in December 2005 when a Hallam Tennyson was found with serious head injuries in his flat at Highgate, London. Tennyson was 85 years of age, a writer, radio producer, and a great-grandson of the poet Alfred Tennyson. Tennyson had also been a conscientious objector during World War II and a socialist, and in 1953, after visiting Yugoslavia, he wrote a book about his travels, called Tito Lifts the Iron Curtain. Tennyson was gay and a regular cruiser at Hampstead Heath, and he often invited pickups to his flat. It's assumed that Tennyson must have known about the spanking bench, and he probably knew Alan Chapalo. The lead detective, Peter Lansdowne, thought there was no evidence of the murder being sexually motivated, but a member of the Metropolitan Police LGBT advisory group ...said that they had not been contacted about the murder... ...and although they had a high opinion of Peter Lansdowne as a detective... ...they said he wouldn't know a gay crime if it hit him in the face. Amongst the list of crimes that they had investigated... ...was the Hallam-Tennyson case, which had remained unsolved... ...which seemed very similar to the murder of Chapelo... ...but they had not been con- contacted over the Chapalo case... The court also heard there had been signs in the house that a stranger had been there. There were cigarette butts, a footprint that did not match either the victim or Yam, and a copy of the Daily Mail, a paper that Chaplow's friend said he would never read. The defense tried to cast doubt on Wang Yam's conviction by suggesting that it could have been identity gang stealing posts that killed Allen or a gay pickup that murdered him. It was also suggested that the direction of the judge during his trial may have been unfairly influenced by the jury. The appeal judges did not think there was enough to overturn the conviction, and on the 28th of September 2017, they dismissed the appeal. They explained that the use of Chapello's SIM card in connection could not be explained away. And that the web of activity undertaken by Wang Yam into Chapelow's identity and accounts was so thoroughly interwoven with the murder itself that only Wang Yam could have been responsible. Thomas Harding wrote a book, Blood on the Page, which this uh, podcast borrows heavily from. He made a number of observations about the case. He had mail sent to him by the judiciary when they learnt he was writing a book warning that he could be sent to jail for contempt of court if he speculated about the case. Harding tried to get the court transcripts of the trial, but found it almost impossible. At first they told him he had to pay an outrageous price to obtain them. Then he was told that they had been destroyed, although it was less than ten years after the trial when he was trying to write his book. It was clear that someone was determined that he was not going to be given the transcripts. Alan Chappellow had lived 72 years at Downshire Hill as his house slowly crumbled around him. It was clear to anyone that he was an eccentric and a hoarder and that something was not right. But he wanted to be left alone. At his funeral, distant relatives who hardly knew him mixed with detectives. So little was known about him that the priest had to read his biography from a book published over fifty years before about his travels in Russia, Alan Chaplow died intestate. So, according to a two thousand and six court decision, his nearest relatives inherited nine Downshire Hill, which at the time was valued at four million. In two thousand and seventeen, the house that had been totally refurbished was on the market for fourteen and a half million pounds. Wang probably only has himself to blame for being in jail. In the spring of 2006, his personal finances were in chaos. Wang helped himself to mail that accumulated in Chapelot's letterbox and embarked on a spate of fraudulent transactions. As a thief, Wang was so careless and inefficient as he was in business. It was the use of a stolen credit card paying for a meal in a curry house that helped the police trace him and led to his arrest in Switzerland in September 2006. The likelihood is that Wang had assumed the house on Downshire Hill though still receiving mail had been abandoned and he broke into steel credit card statements perhaps without even realising that the owner was lying dead upstairs. His defence, what we know of it, ...was an absurd farrago of lies and implausibilities. Did Wang try to be clever and threaten to expose the intelligence services... ...or try to obscure the truth by twisting the facts... ...or just telling lies? It is a possibility that the security services would discredit or silence somebody... ...perhaps framing them for a murder or a crime they did not commit. Wang Yan may have lied his way to the UK by promising things to the intelligence that he could not provide. He claims to have had links with powerful families in China and was presumably expected to act as an informant. Or maybe he was supposed to infiltrate Chinese organised crime in the UK but did not perform to expectations or turned double agent to help the gang instead. Wang Yam's chaotic and dishonest financial behaviour may have worried his intelligence handlers who have made me looking for an excuse to lock him up and discredit him. Before, during and after the trial, the government went to extraordinary lengths to ensure that the details of Wang's links with the intelligence services would remain secret. Two Home Office ministers told the trial judge that Wang's entire defence must be heard behind closed doors, and a contempt contempt order issued by the judge prevented the media from speculating about the reasons for sec- uh, secrecy. The case against Wang Yam rested almost entirely on his involvement with the bank thefts and fraud. There was no DNA or fingerprint evidence to link him with the murder, and there were other leads already mentioned that probably were not fully investigated. There does seem reasonable doubt of Wang Yam's conviction, Thomas Harding, who knew the case better than most, thinks he's probably innocent. But it's difficult to feel sorry for him, for Wang Yam, as there's little doubt that he was a crook and a liar and his own worst enemy. That concludes this podcast. Question remains, did Wang Yam commit the murder of Alan Chappellow? Does anyone care? Certainly it seems that the somebody in government wanted to keep him quiet. Anyway, thank you for Damselfly for providing the background music. All the information for for this podcast came from Thomas Harding's book, Blood on the Page, A Murder, A Secret Trial and A Search for the Truth and also from newspaper articles that I've researched on the internet. And I'd like to, of course, thank you for listening and say goodbye. Goodbye.